Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Robotics Podcast. Hello, Professor Abi. Thanks so much uh, for joining us in the podcast. Such honor well, to have you. Thank, Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'd like to ask you first how you would like to define yourself, uh, maybe for the audience, when you be first time listening to you. How would you like to define yourself? Um, well, my profession is astrophysics, uh, but uh, I'm still... Uh, uh, maintaining my childhood curiosity and all the labels that I have right now are not so relevant, actually. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So going back to childhood, we have a signature question about the childhood. And we ask how childhood plays a significant role in your curiosity. And yeah, do you have any memories about your childhood? Yeah, in two ways, uh, the childhood shaped the way I am right now. Uh, one way is that I was born on, on, on a farm and I used to collect eggs every afternoon and uh, drive a tractor to the hills and uh, on, on weekends and read philosophy books. Uh, and so uh, that uh, um, put in me two uh, traits that I share right now. One is uh, the connection to nature. I, I feel much more connected to nature than, than to people. Uh, uh, I'm not a social animal. I don't have any uh, uh, accounts on social media and I, I don't care how many likes I have on Twitter. I'm pretty much uh, uh, paying attention to the evidence that we get from experiments, uh, data, from observing the universe. I jog every morning at 5 a.m. and enjoy the company of ducks, uh, rabbits and, and birds uh, much more than the company of people. Uh, so I'm sort of uh, independent in my thinking and uh, connected to nature. And the second uh, trait uh, came from the philosophy that I was very interested in at a young age. And uh, simply uh, it asks the biggest questions about our existence. And uh, I was uh, driven to astrophysics later on by circumstances and uh, realized that astrophysics is actually, even though it was an arranged marriage, so to speak, uh, it was my my true love because in astrophysics, we can address uh, some of the deepest philosophical questions like how everything started, uh, uh, how did what happened in the early universe and how did the things we see around us today came to exist. And we can also ask, so that's setting the stage, so to speak. Yeah. And then uh, we can also ask, uh, how did we come to exist as living creatures here uh, on earth and how, uh, you know, we are born into this world and uh, as actors and uh, the question is, um, you know, who else is around and the other other actors around and, uh, you know, is, are we the, the only actors in our neighborhood or are there smarter actors? And, um, you know, that's the question of my new book, Extraterrestrial. Um, uh, yeah. So first of all, congratulations for your new book. But maybe Thank because we are from robotics community and we're curious about, uh, we saw you and Joy World, for example, and Frank Keating, you speak about the Momo phenomena and whether it's from alien technology or artificial origin or maybe from yeah natural phenomena. If you can tell us about Momo in 2017 for people who maybe first time outside of your field, what's actually is why do you think it's uh, maybe artificial origin or yeah right so uh, 
Yeah, so Oumuamua was the first uh, object that we spotted near Earth that came from outside the solar system. Uh, and we call it interstellar because it came from outer space. We don't know where from. Uh, and at first, the uh, astronomers assumed that it must be a rock of the type that we have seen before in the solar system bound to the sun. But this one, of course, came from another star. Uh, then uh, as more and more data was uh, assembled on it, uh, it looked like it, it, it doesn't seem to be a comet. It didn't have any cometary tail. Uh, no gas was evaporating from it as a result of the warming by the sun. And uh, even the Spitzer Space Telescope looked very carefully around it, couldn't detect any carbon-based molecules. Uh, so it was definitely not a comet. Uh, mm -hmm. But then it showed some other peculiar facts. It, it was not um, a rock, an asteroid, because it exhibited an excess push away from the sun, uh, most likely uh, due to the reflection of sunlight. And its shape uh, was quite extreme. Uh, as it was tumbling, uh, it, uh, the variations in light was a factor of 10. And that implied an extreme geometry, most likely pancake-shaped at the 90% confidence. So it was a flat object with an excess push uh, from the sun. And I interpreted that to mean that it's the reflection of sunlight that gives it the push. And for that to be effective, the object needed to be very thin, uh, sort of like a, a sail. And uh, uh, nature doesn't make sails. Uh, and so the suggestion came about that perhaps it's uh, of artificial origin from another civilization. I should say that uh, in September 2020, uh, just a few months ago, there was another object detected by the same telescope in Hawaii, uh, PANSTARS. And by the way, this, this object that I was talking about was given the name Oumuamua, which means a mm -hmm. scout in the Hawaiian language. Uh, and so this new object that was discovered just recently also exhibited an excess push uh, away from the sun without a cometary tail. Uh, it was given the name uh, 2020 SO uh, before anyone knew what, what this object is. And then uh, astronomers realized that it actually came from the Earth. It was a rocket booster from a 1966 launch of a, a lunar mission, Lunar Lander Surveyor 2. And uh, obviously it had thin walls and uh, it was hollow. And that's why the reflection of sunlight gave, gave it an excess uh, push. Uh, uh, it had a large area for its weight. And uh, we know that we produce this object, it's artificial. Uh, we just don't know who produced Oumuamua. That's interesting. Before we go into the controversy, because I think that's very interesting for, what do you think is the purpose behind it? If you, th you let your imagination to, what's the purpose do you think? Right, uh, so to figure out the purpose, you really need uh, more data on an object. It would have been wonderful if we could have a photograph or we could land on such an object and explore it. Uh, but we didn't because uh, it caught us by surprise. It was too small for its distance, roughly the size of a football field at a fraction of the distance to the sun. And uh, our telescopes cannot resolve it. Uh, but in terms of the facts that we know about it, there was one additional uh, strange fact. And uh, it came from a special frame of reference. Uh, it's called the local standard of rest. It's the frame that you get to when you average over all the motions, the random motions of stars in the vicinity of the sun. Uh, and uh, it's sort of like the local parking lot. And, and this object was at rest in that local standard of rest. 
It was sort of like a buoy sitting at rest on the surface of an ocean uh, with the sun being a giant ship that runs into it. And so mm -hmm. the relative uh, motion of the sun and this object was just the motion of the sun relative to the local standard of rest. And, you know, you may ask why would, I mean, uh, only one in 500 stars are so much at rest uh, as this object was. So it's extremely rare to find an object that is at rest in the local standard of rest. Uh, and you might ask why. And uh, one possibility is that it's a, a member of a grid of objects that um, are used for navigation purposes to know your coordinates uh, in interstellar space. Or maybe it's a relay station uh, for communication purposes. Uh, we don't know. Uh, I think uh, the best thing to do is next time we see another object like it, and there should be more in the coming years because yeah. only after observing for a few years with the Pan-STARRS telescope, we found this object. So we should find more uh, every few years. And uh, in fact, in three years, there would be uh, a new observatory called the Vera Rubin Observatory, much more sensitive than Pan-STARRS that could find an object like that every month. And when mm -hmm. we see an, a weird object of this type, uh, we can send a spacecraft with a camera uh, that will intercept its orbit and get a close-up photo uh, because they say that a picture is worth a thousand words. Uh, in my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book. Maybe I'll just ask you, uh, because for example, Neil deGrasse Tyson, when I saw his comment about this phenomena, he said that we don't have to jump for conclusion, it's alien technology. And some people say, why do you think uh, we believe in that? what could be the gain or benefit for humanity if we know there's are more intelligent species and other, and other planets So, Why do you believe in that? And why do you think that we don't have to jump to this conclusion? So it's really to happen. Well, the way science is done is uh, when you have anomalies of this type, uh, mm -hmm. when there is some observational evidence, you have to explain it, okay? That's the way science is done. It's not just saying, I don't think so, I, I do think so. It's not a matter of opinion. Uh, mm -hmm. What you need to do is explain the facts. And uh, uh, other than the artificial origin, the, the light sail uh, hypothesis that I was talking about, the reflection of, of sunlight as the source of the extra push, there were uh, three other possibilities put on the table. And so we just need to look at them. Mm -hmm. and decide which one looks more plausible. Uh, the point is you need to explain the anomalies. And so the three possibilities that were put on the table in addition to an artificial origin, one was uh, that it's a hydrogen iceberg. It's a chunk of frozen hydrogen uh, so that the, when you get a cometary tail from that, when the hydrogen evaporates, uh, you won't see it because hydrogen is transparent. Uh, we've never seen a hydrogen iceberg, by the way, and we don't know whether such things are produced in nature, you know, in molecular clouds. But at any event, the problem with this proposal is that the hydrogen iceberg uh, would evaporate very quickly along the journey. We showed that in a scientific paper uh, that it wouldn't survive interstellar space because it would absorb starlight and, and evaporate uh, very quickly. Uh, so that is not a viable possibility. Then there was a suggestion uh, maybe it's a cloud of dust particles, very porous, uh, very rarefied, a hundred times less dense than air. Uh, and of course, the problem with that is when it gets close to the sun, it will be heated by hundreds of degrees. And it's difficult to imagine how a, a cloud of dust, like a dust bunny, 
that is a hundred times less dense than air will maintain its integrity uh, uh, given its uh, relatively weak material strength. Um, and, and so then there was a third suggestion that maybe it's a fragment, a piece of a, a bigger object that was disrupted as when it passed close to a star. And the problem with that is usually you would get an elongated cigar shaped uh, fragment rather than pancake shape uh, as inferred from Muumuu. So all of these alternative uh, proposals have flows, uh, deep flows. And so it's not just a matter of Neil deGrasse Tyson saying this or that, you know, it's not politics that we are talking about. There are some anomalies that were observed and you need to explain them. That's the way science is done. And to me, given the, the alternatives, the artificial origin is a viable possibility. It needs to be put on the table. I'm not saying that it must be the case. I'm just saying that all possibilities that were entertained involve something that we have never seen before. And so the obvious conclusion from that is, let's collect more data on future objects of this type. Let's get a picture. The only reason we will not get a photograph is if everyone says, oh, it's a rock, forget about it, business as usual. That's the only way by which we will not know much more about it. And you know, it's very similar to the way the philosophers reacted to Galileo. They said, we know that the sun moves around the earth. We don't need to look through a telescope. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting, Bartan. Maybe I'll just ask you first, why do you think there's maybe um, this kind of maybe bias or maybe it's a kind of a community sometimes, not even in, uh, in your field, but I think in general, is there's a conservative approaches that you don't have to go to risk ideas or different explanation. From right. so that, how do you feel about that? Yeah. Yeah. So that's very common in the current academic culture and especially in, in, in physics. And it's unfortunate because it suppresses innovation. And one reason for that is that people uh, worry about uh, taking risks, putting skin in the game and getting into what they might regard as a controversial discussion. Uh, but think about uh, uh, ancient history when humans used to, to argue that the the body has a soul and therefore anatomy should be forbidden. Uh, imagine if scientists would say, oh, it's a controversial subject. Some people claim the human body has a soul and others dispute that. We don't want to discuss it, uh, the human body. And then where would modern medicine be? I think it's an obligation of science to actually address questions of importance and, and interest from the public using the scientific method and clear them up rather than shy away from them. But the reason that they, it's not attended to this subject, even though the public is extremely interested in this question, mm -hmm. and, and the testimony for that is the success of my book, which is a bestseller in many, many countries uh, a week after appearance. Um, so the reason that scientists uh, shy away from it is uh, because mm -hmm. uh, there is some risk involved uh, in uh, talking about it. And uh, they want to maintain an image where they uh, you know, have a good reputation and get honors, awards, and so forth. And uh, the problem with that is that it, it brings the, the practice of science into a safe place, a, a, the comfort zone of, of scientists. And that's not the right place to be in, because if you think about quantum mechanics, one of the pillars of physics that was discovered a, a century ago, it took physicists out of their comfort zone. And uh, Einstein, Albert Einstein, resisted the notion of spooky action at a distance, but he was wrong. Turned out that quantum mechanics has spooky action at a distance. We know it from experiments. And so uh, the comfort zone of scientists is not the place to be in. 
Now, what it does is bring some scientists to even not want to have to be engaged with experimental verification. So you see these cultures of string theory, people that invoke the multiverse, extra dimensions, supersymmetry, things that uh, do not stand up to any validation from experimental data. And the reason it's very comfortable, you may ask, okay, if the, if the community is so conservative, how come it discusses extra dimensions? You know, that's mainstream right now. Well, the answer is because it's a safe zone. It's a place where you can be and demonstrate that you are smart without putting any skin into the game, without risking yourself. In fact, it's better than areas where you have experimental tests because you, you're at no risk of being proven wrong. And so that to me is the motivation. People want to maintain their image and do not want to be proven wrong. And therefore they shy away from experiments. At the same time, they are uh, you know, uh, ridiculing discussion on something that is basically related to evidence, you know, the, the possibility that Umuamo is a technological signature. And I think it's unhealthy. This, this state of affairs is unhealthy. And I very much hope that it will change. I wrote my book, by the way, for the young generation with the hope that without prejudice, they will fill the, fill the halls of academia in the future and bring a new spirit uh, that is more risk-taking. And, uh, you know, science is supposed to be exciting, not boring. We are not supposed to repeat what we already know. We're supposed to explore new things. And there is no way of yeah. doing that without taking some risks. That's well known in the commercial sector. I, I really would like to thank you for this point because I think it's not only limited to physics. I think in general, um, yeah, I don't know what you think about what could be approaches. Of course, you, in your book, you try to uh, instill this uh, for younger generation, but what could be maybe realistic approaches so that we can change way of thinking that because we have right. funding and if you have a risk and if you are still starting career, you don't have to go to risk because I can imagine how it's stressful, yeah, to have this old people. Yes, it is, uh, it is definitely stressful. And uh, th there are two ways that I see uh, a, a path forward. I mean, I don't expect, uh, you know, just like we couldn't expect Marie Antoinette to endorse the principles of the French Revolution because she benefited from the previous system. You know, she wouldn't endorse. Uh, she, she suggested that people eat cakes if they don't have bread. You know, that was a famous statement. So I don't expect people that benefit from the current system to embrace the new principles of, you know, putting skin in the game and testing their predictions and possibly, you know, being wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. But I hope that the younger generation will bring back uh, the healthy state of affairs that used to characterize physics and science and, and the academic culture in the past. And by the way, that's the whole purpose of having tenure, that uh, you are uh, not worried about uh, your job prospects and you are able to go in, into innovative ideas. And it's really ir ironic that uh, people get tenure and then become even less risk uh, take, taking, uh, you know, more risk averse, uh, just in order to gain honors and awards. You know, th this is really not what it, it was meant to. Um, and the way I think we should we could change the culture, other than bringing uh, young people with with a different approach, is um, uh, by rewarding people for uh, taking risks, by rewarding those that uh, uh, are innovating, uh, rather than those that uh, maintain their the old mm. traditions. And the way you know that funding, for example, takes place right now is based on selection committees that are populated by those same people. 
that maintain the current culture. And obviously the funds are not allocated to uh, risk-taking or innovation. And uh, one way that scientists often justify it is say, oh, uh, you know, it's taxpayers' money. We should use taxpayers' money in a way that, you know, will not waste it. Uh, but in fact, uh, the commercial sector has a completely different approach. It's clear that if you take risks every now and then, you would be successful and that would actually give you much greater benefits because you will discover new things. Uh, and so uh, I, I think that um, the conservative approach of investing only in things that you can forecast in advance, what they will give you is actually uh, uh, accomplishing the opposite. It's, it is wasting money on things that we already know. And um, uh, so I very much hope that the, a new approach to funding uh, with a, a certain portion of the funding allocated to innovative proposals uh, would be adapted. Uh, but even if the federal agencies cannot uh, accomplish that because the scientific community is filling up the selection committees and therefore yeah. suppressing uh, risk-taking, even if that's the case, perhaps the private sector, perhaps um, you know the uh, wealthy individuals, there are many of them right now, would, uh, aside from trying to make a profit, would invest in fundamental research and allow, um, you know, innovation this way. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Thank you for saying that. I'm curious to ask you what something is still hard to understand. Maybe when you have this uh, a moment in 2017 and lately you also so peculiar and just September 2020, but something is still hard to understand. When you let's think about it, what something is still hard to understand? Yeah, so, um, uh, well, first, so there are, uh, in the case of Oumuamua, there were some uh, anomalies, as I mentioned, that each of them uh, could be a 1% chance, you know, that it's, it's a rare outlier in the population of objects. And, but then when you multiply six times uh, the 1% probability, you get one in a trillion, which makes it extremely unlikely. Um, mm. And, you know, so um, why would the first object show up uh, and come from such a rare tail in the distribution of possible objects? That was the thing. And, and to me, the most uh, unusual anomaly was the excess push away from the sun that uh, was not associated with any cometary activity on this, on this object. And uh, of course, um, as we get, if, if the object is really a technological piece of equipment, then uh, when we take a photograph of it, we will see many more uh, strange features. And, um, if we decide to land on such an object, we can learn about the technology that is far more advanced than we have. Mm -hmm. um, and so the more information you get, the more questions you can ask. Uh, at the moment, the information is very limited. But what I'm suggesting is a different way of searching for technological civilizations. In the past uh, 70 years or so, we, used the, we, we searched for radio signals. And that is like uh, trying to have a phone conversation you need the counterpart to be alive when you have the conversation. But uh, for example, the Mayans are not alive in, uh, anymore. They're not around. We cannot have a phone conversation with them, but we can learn about the, the Mayan culture by uh, searching for the relics that, uh, it left behind in archeological digs. And we can do the same thing through space archeology. span uh, so, uh, In fact, it turns out the sun is a latecomer. Most of the stars, uh, were formed billions of years before the sun. And so if they had civilizations like ours that developed technologies and launched them into space, 
we could find equipment that fills space, even if the civilizations are dead by now. Uh, and most of this equipment will be billions of years old. Just imagine Voyager 1, Voyager 2, New Horizons. These will not be functional a billion years from now, but they would still provide uh, a, a symbol of a civilization that existed uh, ourselves that sent them. And so it's a completely new frontier that uh, can be opened. And I think that space archaeology should be as mainstream as archaeology on Earth is. Uh, so every campus should have, you know, pot potentially a group of people working on space archaeology. Why not? That's interesting. So I guess this cue, if we are not alone, I don't know if you think how, how much does it take to answer this question, whether we are alone or with other people or other species and other planets. So what does it take to answer this question? Yeah, I don't, think they, I don't think it takes too much. Uh, right now, um, there is very little funding at the level of hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to the search for technological signatures uh, from federal agencies, you know. And that is uh, a factor of a thousand less than other frontiers in astrophysics, like the search for the nature of the dark matter. We don't know what most of the matter in the universe is. And there, are, there were various conjectures about specific types of particles and hundreds of millions of dollars were invested in searching for them, either in laboratory experiments or in the sky. We haven't found evidence for the dark matter. You know, it's not a problem, but one thing to recognize is the dark matter nature will have zero impact on our daily lives because who cares if it's an axion or a weakly interacting massive particles, you know, it wouldn't have any effect on us. However, if we find that there is another civilization out there and they are smarter than us, you know, it would have a huge impact on society. It will change our appreciation of our place in the universe. You know, it will uh, change our aspirations for space exploration. Uh, it would uh, change the way we think about our future, about religion, uh, a lot of things, how to communicate with them, what can we learn from them? Uh, a lot of issues will come up and um, there is no question that has a bigger impact on society, I think, than finding that we are not the smartest kid on the block. Um, mm -hmm. Nevertheless, very little funding is allocated for this. And I, I find it very strange because the public funds science, as we said before, you know, the taxpayers money. And so how come the scientists are not responding to the interests of the public? Uh, and not only that, but ridiculing this subject, and not only that, are supporting cultures of, of scientists that are not even engaged in an experimental verification. So something is really wrong right now in the intellectual culture within academia. Absolutely. Wow. I agree with that. Yeah. So maybe someone could argue about whether what you do, yeah, maybe lead to nothing. Maybe. We, are, we, we can make a mistake. And... How do you see the committing mistakes in general? Because people sometimes say that committing mistake is not allowed even to, to do mistakes. Oh, no. I mean, uh, Albert Einstein was wrong three times at the end of his career, the last decade. He argued that black holes don't exist, gravitational waves don't exist, and quantum mechanics doesn't have spooky action at a distance. And the thing to recognize, I mean, all three were verified. Um, uh, he was shown to be wrong on all three counts uh, from experiments that took place later. Uh, and the lesson from that is that when you work on the, on the frontiers, you, you might be wrong uh, because it's never clear which path to take. And, but, but it's part of the experience, you know, and, and kids are not worried about uh, bumping their legs into objects and uh, in, in learning about how to behave. And, you know, that's 
called putting skin in the game. You know, that, for them, it's literally uh, speaking, it's, they actually get bruised. And, but for scientists, you know, it's a way of uh, learning about the world by, by comparing predictions to, to data, to clues, to evidence. And that's the way we learn. And it's not about us showing that we are smart. It's about a dialogue with nature, trying to learn about nature. Uh, and we should be humble and modest. You know, uh, what we know is very little. Uh, we are such small uh, partners in the universe. You know, we are such a small component. How can we be arrogant and believe that we know in advance what the truth is? You know, when people try to argue that we are the center of the universe, that was very flattering to our ego, but turned out to be wrong. Uh, the earth moves around the sun, as Galileo was arguing. Uh, and the fact that philosophers didn't look through his telescope didn't change anything. It just maintained their ignorance. And reality doesn't care whether we ignore it. Uh, and so my point is simple. It's to our benefit to get as much information about our environment, including you know, who else, other, other civilizations out there. It's to our advantage so that we'll get a more realistic picture about our place. And therefore, we should explore it. You know, uh, the LIGO experiment that discovered gravitational waves uh, required $1.1 billion. Without this investment by the National Science Foundation, we would never discover gravitational waves. So you can't say, okay, let me put just $100,000 and see what I get. And if the evidence is not extraordinary, then I won't even believe in the possibility that there, are alien there is alien life. Well, that's not the way to do it. You need to invest a billion dollars at the level of the LIGO experiment, and then you would have a good shot at, at seeing something. And uh, my point is that um, you know, without willing to discover new things, you will never discover them. And in the case of space archaeology, the next step, in my opinion, is to uh, design uh, cameras uh, that will be deployed uh, in, uh, within the orbit of the Earth uh, around the sun, such that uh, when uh, interstellar objects like Oumuamua that look weird come along, these cameras will uh, get close to them and, and snap a photograph. And then we can tell what they look like. This would be uh, the equivalent of doing space archaeology. Mm -hmm. That's a good point, yeah. I'm curious about that maybe influence for public because I, I, can, I can assume how it's hard again and it's a responsibility for you to, to do that by yourself. So. I can't imagine how it's hard, but how do you see now the influence for the direction of the project or the problem or the question that matters to people at the end of the day? And we don't right. have an equal number for ecologists and aquarius and etc. for this direction because it is a hard you can communicate right. with people. It, it's very difficult, I should say, and painful for me personally because uh, people are attacking me uh, without, and all I'm asking is to pay attention to the evidence um, and the. Uh, uh, the way I see, I mean, the only reason I'm doing this is because it's a very big question. You know, this is a, a question that is the most fundamental and the most uh, that will have the most impact on society if we answer it. And I just mm -hmm. think the scientific community is exactly in the wrong place. And I'm willing to carry the consequences, you know, um, because I think it's so important to humanity. It's one of these big questions that will have a huge impact. And we just, we cannot allow ourselves to ignore it. And indeed the public resonates with my point, but the scientific community is not. And I'm even being attacked as if, as if I'm saying something against the, the SETI community, which is exactly the opposite. I'm asking for them to be funded by more. 
So um, it's really difficult. And, uh, you know, when I was uh, young at age 18, I served in the military. And I remember saying that uh, a soldier sometimes has to put his body on the barbed wire so that other others will pass through. And that's the way I feel. I, I really uh, wish that the, the younger generation of today will have an easier time and will be able to discuss this subject freely. And I'm mm. doing that by going through this process. Uh, but it, by no means it's guaranteed that I will be successful in changing the current culture. Mm -hmm. First of all, I think what you do is, is really absolute courage to even if it's right or wrong, but I think uh, I appreciate that because not many people are willing to do that. So thank you for doing thank that. You. Thank you. And uh, we are closing to end and have a few questions. First one, what's your aspiration? You have a lot of success and I'll have you talk about explaining what you said in extraterrestrial. So what's your aspiration? My, my aspiration is, of course, uh, to find the answer to the question, are we the smartest kid on the block? And I really hope that uh, I will live long enough to see uh, evidence for that. And it would be amazing because I, I think we will be shocked uh, whether, you know, whether we find life, uh, biological life uh, from another planet or if we find technological equipment from another technological civilizations, uh, you know, that would be shocking to us because uh, when you go to meet a person, uh, it's a safe assumption to make that the, the other person would look similar to you because uh, you share the same genetic heritage. But when you meet life from another planet that had no contact with Earth, I'm not talking about Mars because Mars exchanged rocks with Earth, but something much farther away that had no contact with Earth, then it could be very different. You know, when you open recipe books uh, for cakes, uh, you find that you can start from similar ingredients and end up with very different cakes, depending on how you mix the ingredients and how much heat you apply. And so I would think that we would be shocked to see life uh, on another planet far away, because it would look very different from what we are familiar with. Uh, but in terms of uh, technological equipment, you know, we just started a century ago developing our technologies. And, you know, I, I can imagine how would we be in the future, you know, a thousand years from now, a million years from now, you know, the technologies would be unimaginable uh, 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 for, for, from our perspective right now, and they would look like magic to us. Uh, so uh, uh, I, because other stars formed before the sun, you know, the, the future of us could represent the past of other civilizations that uh, develop technologies. And therefore, if we look at the sky and find those uh, pieces of equipment, we might uh, see our future, so to speak. And uh, it will give us a jump start because we can import those very advanced technologies to Earth without developing them ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Do you think we understand everything about universe? For example, we see that universe sometimes it doesn't make sense to us. And it takes a lot of time that we ask the sleep question. So because life goes so fast, how do you see right. maybe advice for how we contemplate about what around us? So yeah, so yeah. Uh, you know we are born into this world like uh, actors that are put on a stage without a script. Nobody tells us what our role is supposed to be, and you know what's the play about. And mm -hmm. uh, it's very strange uh, when you you are put on a stage. So. Uh, because for me as a scientist, uh, the interesting uh, ambition is to understand what is happening on that stage, who else is on that stage, 
and uh, perhaps that will shed some light about the play that we are playing you know if if we find other actors and um and uh, of course you want to understand also what the stage is made of and you know that's uh, what astronomers and cosmologists are doing trying to figure out what the universe contains and how it works you know what is started from how it evolved to where it is but one thing is clear that we are playing a very minor role you know and that that is the sense of modesty that I was mentioning before. Uh, you know, we are sitting on, on one planet uh, we call our home, the Earth. And, um, and not only that there are 10 to the power 21 such planets uh, in the observable volume of the universe, more than the number of grains of sand on all beaches on Earth. And not only that we are not at the center of anything, uh, but also the uh, half of the sun-like stars have a planet uh, roughly the size of the earth and roughly at the same separation so what we find in our backyard is very common and uh, mm -hmm. so you realize okay you are an actor but there are many uh, other act you know there are many other places where this the circumstances are similar and so the next question to ask is are there other actors and that's the question i'm asking and you know what is the meaning of life is the of course the most important question is there is there any meaning you know and uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, any meaning that we assign to it right now is on Earth, and uh, you know, in in a billion years, the sun would evaporate, boil off all the oceans on Earth. So all the meaning that people usually give to their lives will go away in a billion years. Uh, it will not be forever, and uh, you know, it, it it makes sense to try and figure out the, the bigger picture. You know, what is there a meaning in the bigger scheme of things? And uh, so that's you know, that's the biggest question actually. That's a fascinating, yeah. And do you think ego is important? I know you organize that, but when it comes to you have different ideas, different views, do you think ego sometimes is important for you? To oh yeah, not for me, but I, I do think that uh, ego is uh, 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 sup suppressing uh, innovation because people uh, in the, trying to promote uh, their ego, uh, you know, their self-image and so forth, their, their reputation and so forth. Uh, they are avoiding risks and they are uh, also repeating uh, what we already know and they build echo chambers, you know, professors build echo chambers of students and postdocs that repeat the mantras that they were saying for, for many years and, uh, and that is only in order to make their voice louder and enhance their, their image and uh, that is motivated by ego and I think it goes in the wrong direction of uh, making science uh, serve a purpose that was it was not supposed to. Uh, I mean, the purpose of science is to understand nature, and that's a completely different objective. You know, it's it involves a dialogue with nature. It involves making mistakes through this learning experience. It it involves paying the greatest respect to evidence rather than to what we say in order to impress other people. It it, it involves uh, you know keeping your eyes on the ball and not on the audience, uh, and you know that that goes against the social media, you know, where people just look at each other and see what other people say and just want to be liked by other people. You know, that's not, uh, I mean, the purpose of scientific inquiry, it's not to be liked, it's to explain the evidence that we have. Mm -hmm. That's a serious point, yeah. And what could be uh, the most important quality you have gained in this journey? Because it's all stress and passion, uh, this mixing feelings. Uh, what could be the most important quality? 
Yeah. You have to mention. For me, for me, since the beginning uh, of my scientific career, it was to understand something that nobody else understood. Uh, you know mm-hmm. about nature. To try and you know we our our knowledge is an island in an ocean of ignorance. And I'm trying to push to increase the land mass of this island. And so it was always to try and learn something new about the world. And I don't care so much even about things that I myself uh, discovered or found. And I don't care about the past. I always look forward, uh, sort of like a kid, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. because I'm looking for uh, some excitement, intellectual excitement, not excitement coming from getting an award or an, another person saying something nice about me. That is not an exciting thing. What is exciting is something with substance, you know, some uh, understanding something about the world that we didn't understand before. And that's what drives me and that's what gives me more satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And what could be something inspire you every day, keeps you to do what you do? What yeah, what inspires me is, um, uh, well, uh, interacting with nature. So when I go and jog and, uh, you know, every day I see something new and um, I, I do it at 5 a.m. So I see the sunrise and every day the sunrise looks different. Uh, I must tell you, it's it's quite amazing. And uh, yeah. also every day the weather is different. Sometimes I have to run in the snow. Uh, sometimes I have to run in the rain. Uh, and that I, I enjoyed the challenge of doing that. And one day it was uh, rainy and um, I fell with my face uh, on a rock and uh, uh, blood was covering my, my face. I came home and we had to be rushed to Mass General Hospital. And I spent uh, the entire day until midnight uh, at the hospital. Uh, but then uh, the following day at 5 a.m., I went jogging again with bandages all over my face uh, because I enjoyed challenges. And uh, uh, yeah. for me, uh, you know, if life uh, places a challenge, then I try to cope with it and uh, overcome it. And, and, and that's uh, part of the fun. And but um, overall, uh, it's, um, you know, uh, the connection to nature that gives me the biggest uh, inspiration because, uh, you know, every, every time um, I go out, I, I see different things and uh, sometimes wild turkeys or other things uh, running around. And uh, it's just amazing to, to observe nature. And, you know, um, we live for such a short time, just one part in a hundred million of the age of the universe uh, on such a small uh, rock, we call the earth out of uh, the vast space that is out there, that it's really, uh, I would say, uh, a lost opportunity if you were to just focus on what is happening around you rather than look at the big picture. Uh, it's really the big picture that gives you a peace of mind that you know, whatever happens to you uh, is not that crucial. You know, it's a sense of modesty, but also um, if, thing, if bad things happen to you and you see the big picture, it, you know, it elevates your spirit, it lifts your spirit, it gives you something, uh, some inspiration. And, you know, Oscar Wilde captured it the best. He said, we are all in the gutter but some of us are looking at the stars. That's insightful. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. And lastly, what was the best advice uh, was given to you and was life changing? The best advice was given to you. Uh, well, uh, I, I would say that uh, I didn't get um, a, a good advice throughout my career. Uh, but uh, uh, for example, I was told to uh, focus on a niche uh, and, and develop expertise that, such that I would be the world expert in one subject. And 
it's exactly the opposite uh, of the advice I would give to young people. Uh, I think seeing the broader picture offers benefits because very often a narrow niche dries up after a while and you reach uh, rock bottom and then uh, you don't know where to go from there. Uh, also, sometimes it's not successful. It doesn't uh, provide the fruits that you expected. And so if you have a broader view, you know what to do next and how to and also, if there is evidence that is not quite lining up with what you expect, you know how to interpret it because you have the broader view. So uh, my advice to young people is to maintain their youth in the way they think throughout their life um, and basically be less uh, uh, motivated by their ego and more by uh, curiosity and, uh, you know, be willing to take risks and innovate. Uh, that's the fun. Of, of doing it, you know, getting honors awards and impressing other people is not really uh, as much fun as, as the substance in, in discovering something new. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Professor Avi. It was a real pleasure and honor to have you on the podcast. Thanks well, so thanks much. Well, thanks for having me. It was a great pleasure speaking with you. Yeah. Me too. Thank you.